Safety, Accountability, Fairness, and Equity Today Act, also known as the Safety Act, is a criminal justice reform law that will eliminate cash bail come January 1st. The law has been met with mixed reviews and heavy backlash, including from founder and senior pastor of New Beginnings Church of Chicago, Pastor Corey B. Brooks, who wrote in Newsweek, quote, these movements have all been pushed by elites in the name of helping blacks, but not one of these people has ever visited my neighborhood to ask what we think. It's almost like we have no say, like we are some sort of social experiment, pawns without minds of our own. The pastor joins us now to discuss. Welcome, pastor. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. So tell us where you're joining from and why. So I'm on top of the roof of a building that we made um, to protest the violence and the poverty in Chicago, number one, but also to build a community center that costs upward of $35 million that deals with poverty, um, that deals with changes in the lives of criminals. Um, I've been here now for 11 months living inside this tent behind me, and um, we're breaking ground on, on, on Saturday, hopefully. Hmm. That's incredible. Um, <clears throat> go ahead, Vacha. I was going to say, you write in your piece so movingly about how these um, criminal justice reforms that are designed to help the criminals end up sending criminals back into your neighborhood where they end up preying on vulnerable people who are in your community. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think one of the things that I, I wanted to make a point about in the article is that um, these these individuals are definitely criminals and we need to see them as such. And whenever we're allowing them to come back into our community without consequences, it only damages us even more. We're already dealing with severe violence. We're already dealing with lots of crime. We've had the highest number of carjackings that we've ever seen in the city of Chicago, but yet we decide to side with criminals instead of victims. And I think this is a, a behavior that we're seeing, not just in Chicago, but in New York, they already have experienced crime going up and anyone who says that it's not related to that bill cash cashless bill system um, they're not thinking correctly so yeah i wanted to make sure we represent um what i i know the other side would say because we've had you know guests on this show uh who are in favor of this law and they would point out so you know first of all these people have not been convicted yet, so they're you know, still generally entitled to due process and you know, really to freedom until they are convicted. And that because the, the you know, cash bail is essentially keeping people locked up who can't afford to make bail, who are not necessarily the people at greatest risk to the community, right? It's not, it's not discriminating based on who is a danger, but rather just who can afford to pay. argument would be to that is that if you're talking about uh, petty crimes, misdemeanors, then understandable. We, we, we understand it. We get it. But we're not talking about misdemeanors. We're not talking about petty crimes. We're talking about felonies. We're talking about individuals who have been charged with uh, serious criminal activity. And those individuals are being released back into our society to commit more crimes. Uh, could we do something better to, to speed up the criminal process so that uh, these persons who are alleged are doing these crimes could have a speedier trial? Absolutely. I'm all for that. Mm -hmm. But I'm definitely not for allowing them to come back into our community as we as we see consistently uh, crimes being committed. 
Um, one of the things that I would say to them is that I work with criminals. I understand the mindset and the mentality of criminals. And if you let them back into society without any commit more crimes, even while they're waiting on trials. Hmm. Well, New York yeah. Attorney General Letitia James has publicly championed the state's cashless bail law, saying she's now open to making adjustments to the measure after a recent spike in violent and other crimes and polling revealing New Yorkers' top concerns going into the midterms is this surging crime rate. You know, this is definitely something that um, that people care about in in their communities. And, you know, you're in the community, you're you're you know, working with people um, who are who are facing poverty, who have been in the criminal justice system. You know, I, I think it's always interesting to get that perspective because the, the media it tends to uh, speak with one voice about, you know, what people actually care about. But the people you're talking to, the people in the community, is crime absolutely one of their top concerns? Crime is absolutely the top concern. When you have individuals that can't go to parks because of shootouts, when you have individuals who can't walk to the store, when you have individuals who are walking to school, uh, young girls getting raped and uh, getting shot, that's a major problem. Safety is an issue for us in our community. And if we can't provide safety, then how can we transform these communities? How can we turn them around? Uh, in the case of New York, where you have um, the, the, that you know, they were all for the cashless bail system. Now there's a flip-flop. Of course there's going to be a flip-flop. When you are an elite and you don't go and you don't talk to the people who are involved in these types of situations, then you have to flip-flop. You have to come back and say, hey, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe we should rethink it. And that's consistently uh, what we see all the time with these individuals who don't uh, care about the victims. And I think we need to side more on the side of victims. And your, your point of view, though, comes from you work with criminals as well. I mean, that is the thing is you are deeply embedded in a community where you're seeing things from both sides and you're saying, look, this is not compassionate to either side because you in the piece in Newsweek, you talk about having spoken to criminals, spoken to felons who have been released. What they told you would have happened if they had had no cash bail. Talk to us about that. Yeah, we, we our, our Project Hood, uh, Hood stands for Helping Others Obtain Destiny. Um, people can find out information on our website, projecthood.org, how we work with criminals. We work with individuals who are in gangs. We work with individuals who have committed murders. We work with individuals who have come out of prison. Some of them are even on our staff. They've been in prison for 30 years for committing crimes. Some of them are, work on our staff and they've committed crimes in the past and served time. And I've spoken with these individuals and they talk about how uh, if they had been released during a time of being charged with a crime, it only would have given them opportunities to commit more crimes, especially when they think that they're going to be spending some prison time. A lot of times they're going to be trying to make more as much money as they possibly can illegally so that they can take care of themselves while they're incarcerated. So we cannot give these individuals an opportunity to come back into our community, be released into our community and commit these crimes all over again. We see this consistently uh, in Chicago with with the gun charges. We have individuals who are being charged with guns. And there's individuals who have been charged with gun charges and released back into uh, our society only to be charged again and again and again. 
this happens consistently and this is something that needs to be dealt with and i'm sure even the individuals the citizens in new york um they're they're now looking at the situation and i hope i wish that illinois would look at new york and learn um that what's going to happen and uh in our case i believe it's going to be even worse because we're already dealing with a lot of crime mm. well pastor brooks thank you so much for joining us today we really appreciate your perspective and stay safe out there thank you so much i appreciate it and we'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. President Biden's prized student loan forgiveness program was put on hold this past Friday after federal court of appeals for the Eighth Circuit temporarily blocked the initiative from going forward until legal challenges brought against it in six GOP states play out. As of last Friday, some 22 million Americans have already applied for loan forgiveness. Biden could be dealt a major blow should the program be permanently halted, and Democrats will surely feel it too, especially among young voters. A recent NBC News poll shows that if young Americans make it to the ballot box this November, Democrats stand a chance in the midterms, and if they do not vote, the GOP will win. Here to discuss how Biden's plan is hanging in the balance is Democratic strategist Amisha Cross. Welcome, Amisha. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. So here's my question. I mean, voters can't really hold it against Biden if something he tried to do for them was blocked by the courts. So do you feel that this will impact the midterms or that this will impact elections going forward? Do you feel that voters will hold this against President Biden if it is not enacted or that they will see his attempt to do something for them and respect that? Absolutely. And first, I'm going to level set here just a little bit. Um, this is a delay, not a block. And with that being said, um, I think it speaks volumes that the Supreme Court itself has not moved to block this. So we're looking at basically a procedural focus that was expected by this administration, by the Department of, of Education. Everyone knew that those Republican states were going to push against this and that this would more than likely happen. With that being said, we're still watching millions of borrowers uh, apply for forgiveness or apply for relief every single day. And I would also argue that we have to move this outside of the, the younger voter spectrum, because even though it's marketed and a lot of the conversation has been around younger voters, quite frank, frankly, this also appeals to parent plus loan borrowers, which are the parents of those who have already borrowed, as well as many people who are millennials. And right now, we know the oldest millennials are already in their early 40s. So we have to be very strategic about who we're having this conversation about, because the majority of those who are applying, quite frankly, are older, I think, than this context of this conversation allows. But this issue is a huge one, and it goes into college affordability, one that the president has been leaning very strongly in on. When he was running in 2020, over 80% of the people polled, whether they were from blue states, red states, or purple states, they prioritized uh, college affordability and student loan debt, recognizing that it prevents people from getting forward with their lives. It prevents them from buying homes. In many cases, it has paused people from deciding when to or if they want to start families, cars, what types of options they will have for employment and what types of jobs they will take. All of these things go into context. So I think that in this election cycle, obviously this is important, but quite frankly, it is a president who is checking off the box of things that he literally ran on in 2020 and was being held accountable to by many of those who voted for him. Yeah, I personally would love to see this policy halted because I don't I don't support it whatsoever. I don't know whether any of these legal challenges will amount to much. I am not persuaded at all that the HEROES Act uh, authorizes the president to, to cancel this amount of student 
debt. That, to, to my mind, that was clearly about uh, people serving uh, in the military, and it was about delaying it. So I, I don't find the legal rationale that compelling. That said, I have no idea what a court will say. You know, I, I think any person should be able to sue to stop this, but we've had a problem determining standing because the current you know, the, the current legal or judicial philosophy of the court does not hold that just because you're a taxpayer, you are necessarily negatively impacted by a policy. That's how, that's how the Supreme Court would feel about things. If I, if I ran the, the world, I would want taxpayers to be able to sue about their, you know, tax dollars being spent in Ukraine, being spent anywhere, being spent on anything. But that's just not, it, realistically, that's, that's not where things are. So what do you think, Bacha? Do you think this could put a dent in um, young people turning out uh, for, for Biden? I, I could actually I could see very progressive young people saying, you know what, the court's stopping it if that is what happens. But he didn't do enough. He could have done this earlier. He could have tried harder. Uh, I, I actually could see them holding Biden accountable for this. I mean, I do think it gave him the ability to say, look, I tried, right? You know, the the that sort of symbolic gesture, I did my best for you. I mean, you know, I, I sort of am more on your side of this. I think that that symbolic gesture showed exactly who the Democrats see as their base, which is the college educated voter. Um, but um, it, it seems to me like it would be so churlish to to hold him responsible for the actions of the court when the Biden administration has worked so assiduously to make sure that there is no plaintiff who has standing to sue, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I, 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 I do feel that it would be surprising to me for people to hold that against against him. Well, and once the, uh, don't you think, Amisha, once the, because I agree with you that this is really a temporary delay, um, and once the payments start going out to millions of people, I don't know how you roll that, but even if later it's decided some judicial authority says, no, the underlying rationale for this is not legitimate, which, again, I agree with. But once the money has already been paid out, there's going to be a certain point where it, like, it just can't be undone, even if the, the justification doesn't hold up, right? I mean, what are they going to make everybody, <laughs> everybody who got the loan forgiveness write a check for that amount? I, I don't see that happening. This I just don't see be, that happening. This is going to be a hard sell for Republicans because the thing is, um, when you're talking about people who are under 45, largely those individuals have so much student loan debt. The average student loan debt in this country for a minority person graduating from college is close to 60K. So whether it was forgiven at that 10K range or 20K if they were Pell Grant recipients, that still leaves them with quite the burden when it comes to student loan debt. Beyond that, the, the other issue that we have is the, again, the rising cost of higher education. And that's something yeah, that's that the administration the has not issue. necessarily been able to tackle. But the student loan debt issue and the student loan crisis, this is the largest growing expenditure in the United States and one that is not showing any signs of stopping. So I think that we do have to pay that very close attention. And um, Vacha said something earlier. It's not just uh, college educated or college graduates. To be honest, the 10 or 20K, should that forgiveness go through, which I believe that it will, the majority of people who will have their debt completely forgiven are people who never graduated at all. Well, but Because a lot of our country, quite frankly, goes to college or starts higher ed process, but doesn't ever see it across the finish line. But they still have student loan debt. And yeah. sometimes that is 10, 20, $30,000, sometimes more, depending on where you went. But are we, we're gonna make this whole problem, I think we're gonna make this whole pro pro uh, problem much worse by, by doing this, because the, the incentives now for the universities, I mean, this, the, the, the universities have no incentives to keep costs down. But the universities and that's getting had worse. zero incentive before this. So so we, but we, now the, if we're going to move to income-based. can't be perfection. Well, uh, yeah, it's going to be, but I think it's going to be even worse because of the income-based repayment component of the Biden plan. Uh, because now if you're not, 
it's good. we're going to get to a place where most people taking out these loans have never have any intention of paying them back whatsoever. They're going to pay whatever it is, you know, ten, some portion of your income for 10 years and it's going to go away. So then why are the, the colleges are going to raise it even more? That is a argument that doesn't necessarily play out, statistically speaking, because these colleges have been raising tuition anyway, and that's been yeah. happening since the 80s. And it extrapolated and went even larger yeah. in the early 2000s with no signs of stopping, and it's not been regulated largely as well. But well, that is that is a bigger problem that exists outside of this, yeah. uh, of this student loan debt conversation and, and burden that's associated with it. The these individuals are not choosing lower paying jobs to get out paying student loan debt. Let's let's be real here. Since the mid 2000s, we had how many recessions? We've had how many economic downturns? We've had how much where individuals, quite frankly, a lot of the positions that were available for our parents or people who are a little bit younger than them yeah. aren't even available today. So we have to be very honest about what jobs are available to those graduating from college. Also, how long um, recessionary traits last. Because quite frankly, after the crash of 08, it took almost 10 years for people to try to gear up and feel as though they were in an okay place, and then we hit another spot. So uh, there, there's a lot of there there, and it's not that people are taking jobs that are lower paying so they want to pay back their Well, no, 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 but... Uh, They're taking what's available to them. I think it'd be one degrees. thing to, to do this student loan forgiveness and then also cancel the policy that creates it, which is the subsidized student loans in the first place, but we're leaving the policy intact. There'll be just as much student debt five years from now as there is now, and that's, I don't know how you feel about it, Bacha. I, I would love to get to a place where college is affordable. I, I don't think it should be free. I think it should be affordable the way it was 40 years ago for our, you know, our parents and our grandparents' generation. You could pay your way and you could afford uh, tuition. At some point, this went horribly wrong, I suspect, because the during government the started subsidizing. There's a, whole, there's a whole list of things that went wrong during the Reagan administration. Well, I think and part of it is that, that the government pays the cost federal of... responsibility um, and placed it on the borrower themselves and the borrower's families. And if you are someone and from a low-income background or a first-generation college student, it becomes a lot more difficult for you to walk into a college or university and be able to afford it, recognizing the outcomes are statistically supposed to be better jobs, better paying, um, longer term economic focus for you and your family. But what we have now is a system that was basically designed for the wealthy to be able to continue maintaining their wealth for their kids to go to school. Meanwhile, everybody else is burdened with wild tax debt. Yeah, I guess my problem is not like I, th I hear the problem you're describing, Amisha, which I think is real, which is that people go to college expecting a certain standard of living as a result that would put them above the people who don't go to college. And that never materializes. And I have a much bigger problem with the fact that, you know, two thirds of Americans don't go to college, have no intention of going to college and have no way of achieving that standard of living in a way that in a previous generation they might have. So I, I totally agree with you. That is a real problem. But to me, there's a, a an even bigger problem. And it's so funny because there was a video circulating of AOC from a couple years ago. People were making fun of her because she had taken on this kind of like Southern preacher intonation. But what she was saying was the kind of thing that Democrats used to it used to be their message. She was saying there is nothing wrong with being a bartender. There is nothing wrong with being a person who, you know, drives a truck for a living, who cleans people's houses for a living. These are jobs that can be dignified if they are protected and if they have pay good wages. And I feel like that used to be the approach. And now the approach is let's get everybody into college. And if they can't afford it, let's find a way for the taxpayer to pay for it. And I'm just, you know, I, I, I agree with you. It is really sad when people take out loans thinking that they're going to be making, you know, 200, 250,000 
thousand dollars a year and they end up making you know the upper limit is one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars a year for these loan forgivenesses, which is not a lot in New York City. Let's let's be honest. Um, But I I have an even bigger problem with the fact that the median income is fifty five thousand dollars a year and that those people who don't go to college have no hope of achieving that standard of living that used to be a middle class standard of living that was almost guaranteed for working class Americans. So there's two sides to it, I guess. Uh, we got to leave it there. Thank you both. We'll have more rising right after this. German sportswear giant Adidas has cut all business ties with Kanye West after he made a series of anti-Semitic remarks. Ye's recent comments and actions have been unacceptable hateful and dangerous, and they violate the company's values of diversity and inclusion, mutual respect and fairness, Adidas said. The company says they will immediately halt the production of Yeezy products and stop paying the rapper and his companies. I know you have some thoughts about this, Brianna. You were doing some interesting Googling as we were preparing for this segment. (laughs) I was, because look, I I do think, I, I obviously strongly criticize what Kanye said substantively. There's not really any dilly-dallying to be done about the nature of uh, Kanye West's comments. I have And no one has defended them, no, except, Candace well, Owens, except Candace Owens. Yeah, and frankly, uh, some other conservatives have been asked to condemn the remarks, and they have basically sidestepped away from the question. There, people are still continuing to put out supportive tweets about Kanye West um, from that are, that are very much on the conservative side of the aisle, not that that uh, condemns all Republicans. But I've been interested in this other conversation that started to happen, largely in some black spaces, where there is concern about whether or not Kanye West is being treated differently than other people who've been in similar situations. So I think the first red flag for a lot of folks was J.P. Morgan's choice to no longer bank with Kanye West, which seems like a escalation of the sort that we've never seen despite having gone through an entire me too scandal with any number of extremely wealthy, high profile people who have been brought to their knees. I've never heard of a bank saying, we're not going to do business with you. Banks are considered to be sort of like a, taking the train or an airplane. You're not, you don't expect that you're right to, to transact. Well, I don't know about that. We start, I mean, I agree with you. This is a troubling thing to start happening. You know, uh, Institutions like banks that are kind of Thought Common to be carriers. New, right, exactly. Uh, but no, we saw that a little bit with uh, no, okay, not specifically with banks, but with financial services. Uh, well, stuff like for, parlor, and well, and and also ha- yeah. for uh, for the truckers yes. and for certain fundraisers and things. Yes, but that's shutting down. I'm not saying that was yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, I also yeah. think that that was a problem. Right, but that's shutting down accounts as opposed to saying that you're not allowed to bank with this institution anymore. That's shutting down you know, your ability to yeah. pay for, send money to certain movements and things like that. It's a little different. I mean, people, you have to bank. Being unbanked from a progressive perspective, and obviously Kanye is small as violin, he's certainly not hurting for funds or resources, but from a perspe- pro- progressive perspective, people can't have, when you can't access um, loans, when you can't put your money into a safe place, when you can't, you know, so many places are cardless and, 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 and don't accept cash. It's a real kind of, um, uh, kind of civil liberties issue to be unbanked. I mean, far right figures have been shut out of PayPal type things, maybe not banks, but possibly banks. JP By that Morgan. I mean like Richard Spencer and no, like I, I explicitly. I, my, my point yeah. here is not to say that it's Fine when that happens. Yeah, no, this, I know you're that. This that. feels like an escalation mm-hmm. of the sort that I think that people should be troubled by. So this Adidas contract, I think, is interesting for similar reasons. And so, you know, is this the is this something that is kind of par for the course for this kind of company? Now, I do think that we have a longer history of apparel 
clothing manufacturers, things like that, distancing themselves from bad actors. But well, and also certainly associating themselves with people who at various points have been bad actors, probably. I mean, for, for sure. But here's the question. Some people have chose, chosen this moment to, to look at how Mel Gibson was treated after his anti-Semitic comments as a point of comparison. And just as a reminder, Mel Gibson was accused of doing many things. He has repeatedly, apparently, uh, referred to Jewish people as oven dodgers, asking Winona Ryder at a party whether or not she was, quote, a quote unquote, uh, oven dodger, Ooh. obviously a really horrific reference to the Holocaust and gas chambers. Um, when he was famously pulled over by the L.A. County Sheriff's Department in July of 2006, um, he, drunk, uh, said to the officer, apropos of nothing, effing Jews, uh, he did not bleep out the effing, obviously. Uh, the Jews are responsible for all the world's war, war, uh, wars in the world before asking the officer, are you Jew? Um, he's also not minced words about black people. You know, there was that recording yeah. that he had when he was in that abusive relationship with his uh, previous partner, and he told her if you get raped by a pack of N-words, again, he did not say N-words, it'll be your fault. Uh, you know, th those kind of statements. And even after he made those statements, he wasn't dropped by his talent agency, the way that uh, Kanye West has now been dropped by CAA. In fact, he joined CAA after those kind of remarks were made. So the question is, is it that Kanye is just too big a star or are there other factors going on here? But a lot of that, wasn't a lot of the Mel, that Mel Gibson stuff, that was many years ago. My guess is if that happened today, it would result in dropping of everything. I mean, there's greater, um, there's greater sensitivity to that kind of stuff. There's more intolerance of that kind of stuff in the corporate world, in, uh, in everything. I, I, I don't know. You're, you're trying to well, put it. Maybe, maybe it's a discrepancy. Maybe it's not. But I, I and, think and today is, he would suffer those exact Is this a direction? I mean, is this a direction that people should be moving in is the critique that yeah. Kanye, you know, Mel Gibson should have been held to a higher standard then and perhaps should still be held to a higher standard now as his career has largely rebounded? Or is it that banks and these kind of organizations just stay I mean, out I, of these kind of culture wars? I, I do have a sort of, you know, you can appreciate the art while thinking the artist is reprehensible kind of attitude. I think you can have that attitude for Kanye. I think you could still enjoy his music. You're free to do so. I probably wish he would just focus on creating more of it. Similarly, Mel Gibson is obviously repulsive. Um, I don't care for him as an actor. I love his film Apocalypto. is one of my favorite movies of all time, as I've said. I think it's fantastic. Um, I, I think it should be able to s separate these things from a creative standpoint. And then, yeah, I think it's right to be troubled by the Adidas contract's kind of a different thing. He's a spokesperson. He's a brand ambassador yeah. for it. Kanye is. Yeah. Y you can understand them wanting to part with someone who is, you know, who is now several times gone out of his way. This isn't just, ooh, I screwed up. I said something I shouldn't have. I'm sorry. He's, he's continuing this. For sure. Um, that's different than the, the financial institution, yeah. which doesn't really have a... Uh, have a, a message or, right. uh, or expressing an editorial view yeah, or Zam something. Yeah, Amtrak not going to let uh, Kanye right, take the train right, because he's right. anti-Semite. Although people often, right, people often bring up the Amtrak thing. It is, Amtrak does throw off like aggressive passengers. Well, like sure, if you, if, you're, if you don't follow the rules of Amtrak, you get thrown off. Right, right. I, I know because I wasn't super happy about the mask rules. Oh, goodness gracious. Speaking before from you, experience. Before you roll your eyes at me. No, I've never been, <laughs> never been thrown off of Amtrak, etc. Uh, that was someone else. As of this recording, Ye has not yet responded to the Adidas decision. We'll continue to report on any more developments, more rising after this.
So on Monday, 30 House progressives released a letter asking President Biden to push harder for direct negotiations with Russia over the war in Ukraine. An anonymous House aide told The Hill's Hannah Trudeau that the letter was circulated for signatures in June. However, the source wasn't sure why it was released publicly now, noting that the law makes uh, makers, quote, didn't consider election timing. Yesterday, the Congressional Progressive Caucus retracted their initial statement. Former congressman from Michigan and first Libertarian Party member of Congress, Justin Amash, sorry, tweeted in response, quote, no Democratic constituency has been more sidelined under Biden than genuine progressives. Democrats are in control, yet progressives consistently have to settle for gestures and occasional scraps. When they step out of line, the establishment quickly reminds them who's in charge. Joining us now to discuss is senior political correspondent at The Hill, Hannah Trudeau. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you. So, you know, what topsy-turvy world are we in where we have kind of libertarians and a, a, a sliver, but a meaningful sliver of the right aligned with non-elected progressive protesters and LaRoucheites in the streets <laughs> to form this really anemic anti-war movement where progressives are bending the knee at the slightest bit of pushback over what was a really benign letter advocating for some abstract diplomacy? What's going on here? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good way of summing it up. I mean, I talked to one uh, person familiar with the drafting of this letter yesterday, early in the morning, and they basically told me, "Look, this was this was drafted by a group of, I think, uh, at the time, you know, a couple dozen House progressives." Uh, back over June or July over the summer months when things looked pretty different uh, on the ground in terms of at least the public perception and and the actual events. Uh, at, you know, back when the Biden administration was trying to figure out what was going on. And uh, pretty candidly, you know, this person involved with the process told me that uh, the Progressive Caucus was, in fact, waiting until uh, they got to 30 signatures among their nearly 100 member caucus uh, in order to release it. And so, uh, you know, didn't quote the, the quote that I think we put in the piece was something to the effect of, you know, we didn't consider uh, the timing of the midterms when when, when folks were drafting that. Uh, over the summer. So, you know, in, in hindsight, I think that that's probably plausible. Now, you know, I, if you think back to the way that things were over the, the summer, there was a lot going on. It, it was a really tumultuous time. Uh, the drafting of that letter, you know, to your point, in, in a lot of progressives' mind was sort of benign, um, given the the unpredictable circumstances on the ground. But now I, it's it's a really tough position that they're in because, you know, like you alluded to, there are some, um, you know, really prominent progressives in the House and also, uh, you know, Sanders in the Senate came out yesterday, totally kind of disavowing this letter. And that puts them in a really tricky position because while some may not even privately uh, disavow the contents of it and what they were trying to achieve, they do have to publicly um, kind of walk it back. And that's what we've seen. Right, which is a massive uh, setback for the actual uh, the sentiment of of non-intervention among uh, progressives that I guess isn't shared now with their Democratic representatives. Do you have any insight into what actually happened in terms of the letter being released? Because 
so maybe this staffer went rogue and released it because they actually agree with the position in the letter and you know wanted to put people on the record. Maybe it was done with permission and then the blowback from more establishment Democrats was so vicious that they decided to kind of, well, blame the staffer and say we didn't intend to release it. Do you have any more knowledge of how this actually happened? Or maybe, I guess it was just somebody hit send on a document before they meant to, which does happen. It's kind of hilarious if that's what went wrong here. Uh, do, do you have any more information about that? Yeah, so we're still we're still working through some of the reporting on that um, today. And, and one thing that I that I was told yesterday from a senior uh, Democratic Hill source who is very uh, very knowledgeable about sort of the process side of these things uh, was basically just a total and complete uh, shock that that this would have happened. Um, it was this person's understanding again with knowledge of the situation that it was a lower level staffer at least involved um, in it, which is tracks with what Jaya Paul wrote, you know, publicly, she didn't quite say lower level, but she did kind of blame it on the staff, which is, you know, in politics in DC, uh, not such a great look, obviously, but um, that seems to be at least one element of it. Although there are, you know, I think that there's probably more to the story that we're going to be reporting out in the next couple of, um, at least the next day or two, because there are kind of conflicting reports saying that Jaya Paul uh, personally, you know, signed off on the release. And, you know, like I mentioned, uh, somebody involved in the drafting of it uh, yesterday told me point blank that they were waiting to get to 30 signatures. So the fact that they were waiting, um, you know, kind of contradicts the, the, the earlier narrative that it was just drafted over the summer and it's old and, you know, the language is outdated. The language was outdated. Uh, I think that that was clear to everybody that at least everybody that I talked to um, but the fact that it was released, uh, I think, is something between staff and Jayapal as uh, as unsatisfying of an answer as that might be. I think that is probably the case. And and again, and, the and, senior and, help person. In, in what way was the, the language outdated? They they said that it wasn't uh, reflective of the developments, uh, the more recent developments, or even or even kind of considering the administration's, you know, newer push and, and sort of involvement now in, in mm. fall versus the summer. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, that sort of, it, 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 it speaks to the broader issue of like, how could this happen? You know, that senior, that senior staffer uh, that I talked to on the Hill was basically saying, this is completely, uh, you know, a, a, a junior level, like a junior league type of move. And it was, it was really shocked that it would happen at, uh, the CPC, just because it's so close to the election time and it's so close to, uh, you know, Democrats trying to kind of unite over one one solid message that this mm -hmm. gives uh, Republicans more fodder mm -hmm. in their minds. Well, Ukraine isn't the only area where progressives and establishment Democrats just can't seem to reach an agreement. Hannah, you reported that the left wants Democrats to focus more heavily on the economy before midterms, as opposed to abortion access, or in addition to, rather, abortion access or Donald Trump's future in the Democratic Party. What's going on there? Yeah, that's another major divide. Uh, we've been reporting that on the past couple of weeks. Uh, so Democrats, you know, progressives in particular, have been pushing f for months, for most of Biden's administration, but at least the last six months or so, uh, for a more, uh, a stronger and more cogent sort of economic populist pitch uh, it, with the midterms in mind. And, and uh, mainstream Democrats, moderates, um, folk act activists in sort of the the reproductive rights sector of various interest groups have pushed back and have said, you know, that's the economy is important, but it's not as important as, let's say, the Roe decision, which was huge over the summer again. 
Uh, now we're seeing that shift because mainstream Democrats have kind of come around to the view that progressives have been pushing all along that it, that tracks with public polling now saying, look, the economy is overwhelmingly on the top of minds of voters as it is almost every election cycle. There's kind of a reason that 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 phrase exists. Uh, and, you know, I mean, there was a recent poll, I think, from Siena College and The New York Times that ranked the economy as something like 26 percent and inflation, I think, 18 percent and abortion down to 5%. And that is a massive uh, red flashing sign to Democrats who are saying, oh my God, you know, we need to figure out how, what the closing pitch will be. And I think that what we're seeing is a divide among the advocates and the more traditional Democrats who thought that abortion was gonna be their silver bullet uh, in the final stretch of the midterms. And it's just not, at least as, as the polling indicates right now, it's not shaping out to be that way quite yet. Uh, not oh. to say, you know, they're not, they're not important issues, but the fact that, you know, more traditional or moderate Democrats are trying to link abortion as an economic issue, again, that's not that that's wrong. Uh, it's just that it's not resonating that way with voters. And so there's a scramble to kind of, uh, you know, make make the, the argument separate at this point. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for those insights, Hannah. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. Verified Action, the voting rights organization founded by Stacey Abrams, spent $9.4 million between 2019 and 2020 on legal fees for a boutique law firm where Allegra Lawrence Hardy, Abrams' gubernatorial campaign chairwoman, is one of two named partners. That's according to new reporting by Politico's Brittany Gibson. Mm, the federal tax filings for the organization are not available beyond 2020, and Lawrence Hardy declined to comment when asked how much money the firm had received in the past two years. But Verified Action maintains their funding for Lawrence's firm work to draw attention to voting rights. So joining us now to discuss is politics reporter at Politico, Brittany Gibson. Welcome, Brittany. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're so glad to have you here. So tell us more about the story. What precisely is going on and is the issue? Yeah, so essentially we can see half the story on Verified's side right now. As you said, we have the tax forms for the nonprofit organization for 2019 and 2020, which show that they spent about $25 million on legal fees. And in interviews with uh, the attorneys for the case, as well as people that work at Fair Fight, uh, they said that most of that money was spent on this litigation. They don't have to provide an actual breakdown. I did ask for it, but they have not released that information. So it's about $25 million for the first two years of this litigation. And this is the case that Stacey Abrams filed at the end of 2018, uh, at the end of her last gubernatorial run. And it went to court this year. So there's an assumption as well that the legal fees will increase at least probably about the same amount of money as the first two years in these most recent two years, 2021 and 2022, when the case went to trial. On the state side, they spent $6 million uh, defending this case. And the case got its verdict uh, about a little less than a month ago and fair fight action uh, lost on the three remaining claims that uh, made it to trial this year. And what were the claims in that case as a reminder? Yes. Yeah, so it started in 2018 as a broader case. Uh, there were about, I want to say about 20 claims, everything from uh, resource allocation that led to long voting lines, the closing and changing of polling places. There was even a claim about voting machines swapping votes for Abrams and switching them to the Kemp tally. 
But what made it to trial after a summary judgment in early 2021 were three smaller claims that don't impact as many voters, did not impact as many voters in the last couple of election cycles. Uh, one of them is exact match for voters that register. Uh, mostly it's going to impact voters that register outside of the automatic voter registration that happens at the, the DMV when you get a driver's license or a non-driver's license of some sort. Uh, the accuracy of the voting rolls on Election Day. So that would impact voters that in the systems, voter maintenance uh, checks uh, when they look for people who might be felons and they they say, oh, this person's name matches a felon that's also mm-hmm. in this county. They might be a felon. And then the third part was the training of poll workers who uh, would help voters cancel an absentee ballot so they could vote in person. So a very specific part of the voting training. So at the end of the day, the accusation is that she spent an outsized amount of money, not just as compared to what the defense spent, but also I saw in your article, other kind of public interest attorneys have pointed to the fact that they would expect a litigation of this sort to be much less expensive. The claims, in fact, were not meritorious in the court of law. So to the extent that they drew attention to these voting rights concerns, it's not clear at this point whether it's positive attention. And people are concerned, doubly so, because the money went to a small law firm that happens to employ someone who's been a longtime associate and friend of Stacey Abrams and who works for uh, worked for her campaign or worked for one of her organizations. Yes, it's it's both. She was the campaign chair in 2018 and is the campaign chair for uh, this campaign, uh, which is usually an unpaid position, does a lot to do with uh, fundraising, not so much the day to day of campaign operations. Um, yes, and that's exactly right. So the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund uh, did a study up through cases in uh, 2021 that looks at the fees that uh you know, uh, plaintiffs as well as states in in defending these cases have paid in past cases uh, similar to the one that Fair Fight Action filed. And they found the most expensive case was uh, $8.8 million in legal fees. That was a case uh, down in Texas. Uh, And typically they said it's a a couple hundred thousand dollars over a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this, the $25 million for just half of this case already makes it the most expensive. So um, the- and I should add, it's, it's not just uh, Lawrence and Bundy, the uh, law firm of the campaign chair. They had, I believe it was eight law firms involved in this case. Um, but Lawrence and Bundy, they were the lead counsel. Yeah. So the, I mean, the implication here then is that this is something maybe not as egregious, but all along the lines of right the Black Lives Matter fundraising not being put to any good use and kind of just you know being used for kickbacks or personal enrichment, maybe, again, not on the level of buying properties, which, which is what happened with the Black Lives Matter organization. But this looks kind of uh, this looks kind of fishy based on your reporting. It's hard to come away with another conclusion. Yeah, I, you know, I remain open minded that there could be a perfectly uh, logical or innocent explanation for why this case was so expensive, why uh, they chose uh, this attorney as opposed to, you know, any other. I've asked and uh, maybe there will be a public answer. Maybe there will be some more uh, explanation given on Fair Fight's side. Um, I think what uh, is important to to think about here is what Kathleen Clark, she's a legal and ethics professor, said in the story. Uh, she said, you know, there could be an explanation, but there's a fiduciary responsibility 
to make the best choices. Abrams yeah. was chair of this organization uh, up until uh, 2021 when she announced her second run for governor. And so in that role as chair of the this nonprofit, chair of the board for this nonprofit, did she make the best decisions in the uh, in spending the money that she raised and Fair Action during this time? This is just the 501c4, the nonprofit group, not even the Fair Fight Action uh, PAC, uh, Fair, which is called Fair Fight Inc., they raised $61 million, which is more than, Oof. you know, any other nationally known group in Georgia. And I found out through interviews with the uh, now former organizing director at the group, she left earlier this year, that uh, Fair Fight Action did not do any direct voter contact in the 2020 election oh. cycle. Uh, they were, you know, not uh, alone in that during the pandemic. A lot of groups that normally do direct voter work didn't. Uh, I was able to uh, verify that information, talking to other voting groups in Georgia. Um, so their, their main, uh, the, the meat and potatoes of what this organization did, their main priority was this litigation. Um, and that is where they spent, uh, it looks like based on the 990 forms, the majority of their money. Sounds like we or should get Stacey brown. Abrams on another magazine cover. Yeah, look, I, I, I'm not going to ask you about this, Brittany. I don't want you to attest to this, but I have observed in interviews with on-the-ground grassroots organizers in Georgia, I detect a sliver of resentment, I got to say, when I hear them talking about the, how underpaid and undersupported on-the-ground staffers are as we, as a nation, witness the enormous fundraising gains and attention that has been paid to Stacey Abrams in particular as a kind of hero of voting rights and, and uh, electoral victory in a state, despite her own failures to win in any of her own races. And I, I, I appreciate you for bringing this story to us uh, today, because we're definitely going to have to continue following this and see if this, if, if, if what looks like the worst case scenario is in fact the worst case scenario. It is a real injustice to the people who are really working hard on the ground. Thank you again for joining us, Brittany. Yeah, great reporting. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And we'll have more Rising for You. Stick around. Brianna, what's on your radar? I don't know how to sugarcoat this, Robbie, so I'll just say it. It seems clear that the Democratic Party is over. I saw the writing on the wall and left after the Obama years. Probably uh, he was probably the best the party had to offer, and he revealed himself to be a truly disappointing character. You could drive a Bronco through the gap between his campaign promises and reality. And 14 years after he promised hope and change, we still have no campaign finance reform. Roe isn't codified. And instead of using his incredible political gifts to advance the interests of the communities he was supposed to represent, he's now angling to buy a basketball team. <laughs> I guess it's easier to crush a future strike if you own a franchise. Now, that's not to say he did nothing. It's meaningful, truly, to not be denied health insurance because of a pre-existing condition. It matters that 35 million Americans got insurance in the first place through the ACA. But it wasn't enough. I was hopeful that an independent senator from Vermont might write the ship. Bernie stood up to Barack Obama when he threatened to cut Social Security. He truly was unbought by corporate money and was willing to call out the banks that destroyed American homeowners in 2008, even while Barack Obama was consulting with those banks to pick his cabinet. But even Bernie failed to take the type of stand that could have rescued poor and working class people from the corporate duopoly. Push come to shove, when he should have been fighting for our lives at the start of a pandemic, he told America that Biden would be a good president, that he wasn't corrupt, and he endorsed him within days of dropping out of the race, de declining to even withhold his endorsement for anything at all. 
The populist left is such a non-entity that it couldn't go 24 hours without bending the knee to liberal know-nothings, withdrawing a letter, the most milquetoast critique of Biden's policy toward Russia-Ukraine. The letter didn't ask to withdraw aid at all. It merely asked, Oliver Twist-style, please, sir, may I have some peace? <laughs> and progressives still couldn't stick the landing. But despite all of that, Libs are gearing up to blame powerless progressives for what they anticipate will be a disastrous midterm result. Here's Chuck Todd this week on MSNBC. If Democrats come up short in some of these places, I think there's going to be a lot of finger pointing. Progressives are going to take some heat for forcing some certain nominees in certain states um, that, may, that may have been less electable than other nominees could have been. The defund the police movement, all of this. I'm sorry, which precarious Democratic candidate said they wanted to defund the police? Was it Fetterman, the guy who famously chased down a black man vigilante style at gunpoint because he thought he'd committed a crime? He hadn't committed a crime. Or Stacey Abrams, who after, you know, flirting with actual progressivism for about half a second, has run hard on fund the police harder, even though it's probably costing her black male votes in Georgia? Midterms haven't even happened yet. And the Democratic Party gatekeepers, whose purpose is to run cover for the complete and total political malfeasance of liberals, are already in excuse-making mode. Their diagnosis of why Dems are flailing? Same as always. Somehow, it's progressives' fault. The blame, however, lies squarely at Biden's feet. For one, he's done next to nothing about inflation, punting action to the Fed, which acts independently, and whose only plan is to purposefully cause a recession by raising interest rates. In an article published yesterday in Vox, reporter Rachel Cohen asks, is the cure for inflation worse than the disease? The Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes mean 1.2 million people will become unemployed by the end of 2023. Others estimate that number could be as high as 3.2 million Americans out of a job. Quote, I wish there was a less painful way to do that, said Fed Reserve Chair Jay Powell. There isn't. Oh, well, I guess. Sucks to be you. The pain is the point, by the way. They are trying to slow down consumption by literally taking away your salary. The super-consuming rich, though, no one's trying to curb their consumption. No, a wealth tax is firmly off the table. As are the types of interventions Europeans have fought for and secured, like a cap on energy prices. Biden's flack say, don't blame him. He did the Inflation Reduction Act, but the Inflation Reduction Act was fact-checked by the Congressional Budget Office, and guess what? It basically does nothing to reduce inflation. And although the Democratic lawmakers introduced a bill in May that would seek to address one of the roots of the problem, banning price gouging, it hasn't passed the Senate and won't pass the Senate with the current congressional composition, a composition that, if polls are to be believed, is only going to get worse, redder, next year. It's no wonder, then, that Republicans are considered to be better than Democrats on inflation even though their stated plan consists of cutting Social Security and Medicare. After all, how can it get any worse? We know the main driver of inflation is corporate greed. California populist Katie Porter made this case before Congress last week, and a fact check by the Economic Policy Institute and the Roosevelt Institute proved her right. Quote, a large portion of price increases are going to profits for larger corporations and services like groceries, furniture, and cars. Katie Porter's charts... Don't lie. But what are Dems going to do about it? Nothing. They will barely even talk about it. 
The price of a bag of Snickers has more than doubled, Bernie tweeted recently, but Republicans want to give the Mars family, who became 44% richer during the pandemic and are now worth $106 billion, a tax break of up to $42 billion by repealing the estate tax. Nice tweet. But without the message discipline to make sure anyone not terminally online doesn't uh, sees it, just it doesn't exist in the Democratic Party. Good thing they've been spending so much energy messaging about saving democracy. This is a moment for real, independent, populist progressives to stand up to the plate, but they're nowhere to be found. This week, AOC ignored the progressive media that put her on the map, choosing once again to speak on a large liberal platform for people who like her as far as she's a young, articulate Latina who doesn't criticize Biden too much. During her Pod Save America interview, she said a number of insightful things that were, in fact, an accurate diagnosis of what Democrats are doing wrong. And you should listen to that full interview. There's good stuff in there. But she also said this. Special interests. Um, our entire political system is designed to be very, very acquiescent to money. And um, the difference is that Republicans, that's not a... That is part of Republican ideology is to support corporate America. I think the Democratic Party, we really struggle because we're supposed to be the party of the working class. But in reality, there's a lot in our big tent. It's highly segmented. And I think that there is a lot of objections from that within our party, which prevents us from being as forceful on these issues as we can be. This is the problem with left electeds. They're often spot on and even more often are so close to saying something true, but then miss. Look, our politics are being killed by special interests, both Republicans and Democrats. But AOC weirdly pivots when she gets to the Democrats, saying that the real struggle, after, after saying that the Republicans have this problem with special interests, that the real struggle for Democrats is the party's diversity. The problem, she says, is that we're a big tent. I mean, give me a break. How can alienated voters, of which there are a huge and growing number, begin to understand that they should be following you, that left populism offers more than right populism? that you have real solutions if you refuse to call out your own party as bought and sold too. She used to call Dems out. It was why we loved her. But if this is the best the Democrats have to offer, I have to think that there's no hope. Look, I'm not optimistic, but I hope to God that the forward party, the green party, or even libertarians can get their act together and figure out how to mount a real challenge to the two-party duopoly, because things are looking bleak. We're in a world where the right offers up a fake social conservative who's been alleged to pay for multiple abortions while he's simultaneously playing the choir boy. And the liberals are offering up a fracking loving vigilante who likes to citizens arrest black men in his spare time. And neither of them, for, for very different reasons that engender very different levels of empathy, can really articulate their platform, much less inspire the kind of political revolution this country needs. We are on a precipice, and I, for one, am scared, and I'm tired, and I'm seeing protests getting more and more extreme on both sides of the aisle, and honestly, even though I disagree with some of the choices people are making, I get it. Riots, after all, are the language of the unheard, both on 1-6 and during the George Floyd protests. We have everything we need to truly make America great again. 
The people were never the problem. The problem has always been elite gatekeepers. Will anyone stand up and show the people how much power we really have? Or do I have to look forward to the Herschel versus Fetterman ticket, <laughs> or Herschel versus Fetterman in 2028? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> I mean, I know that we, we talked about that uh, debate a little bit yesterday. And you know, some people seem to have come away with the impression that I thought that Fetterman did a good job. No, that's not the point. The point is that it doesn't matter if Fetterman does a good job or if Herschel Walker is a complete hypocrite. No, nothing matters other than that people want control of the Senate. Republicans want their people in control. Democrats want their people in control. And there's good reasons for that on both sides for ideological reasons. And so increasingly, the quality of the candidate just doesn't matter. You've made your critiques of Republicans making b bad uh, yeah. candidate choices and not having these downstream effects and making this a closer race, a closer midterm battle than it needs to be. But the real, the real people suffering here are the American people who increasingly have no one that's actually reflecting their interests in Congress. Mm. Yeah, I, I wish it mattered more. As I actually do. I like some Republicans better than others. I like some Democrats better than others. Um, there's a, actually on the Republican side, there is some. Well, on both sides, uh, there are differences in, uh, in, in views and intellectual traditions. Um, the, the Republicans are going through such a transformation right now to a more worker-friendly um, part. I, I don't roll your eye. Who does corporate America prefer these days? It's, it's Democrats. It's not. It's Democrats. It, I don't know. Maybe vibes. Democrats maybe are becoming on, minute, the... Maybe based on vibes and like whoever says something is woke or something. But if you look at Open Secrets and look at who these corporations are giving to, they now, as always, are giving equally Hillary Republican Clinton. and Democratic. Hillary Clinton's not running for office, Robbie. What? They're now, she as always, did better than... They're now, as always, giving to both parties some, equal they, measure. There are sure. certain industries that favor Republicans, oil and gas, those kinds of industries. And there are certain industries that slightly favor Democrats. Mm -hmm. But all of these corporations give to both parties because no matter who wins, they win and the people lose. And that's the point. We have to stop fighting this left-right game. I'm not interested in playing Republicans are marginally worse than Democrats. That's a, that's a liberal's game. I'm not a liberal. Well, okay. It's easy to say we have to start fighting this left-right game, but we... But we have to vote for every Democrat, no matter what, because I, they are I, I Democrats. Don't think, I don't yeah. vote for Democrats. That's the whole point. Yeah. I opened this thing saying, I haven't voted for a Democrat since Barack Obama. That's yeah. not my bag. My, my frustration is that I feel like every I'm time... I've voted for Republicans since Ron Paul in the primaries. <laughs> I, I feel like every time that I... I, I, I criticize Democrats, I criticize liberals, but I feel con and, and, and there are meaningful differences here, right? Like I don't want there to be a federal ban on abortion. So like I completely understand people who want to sign up and, and vote for Fetterman or vote for, for whomever. But at some point there has to be a break. At some point, progressives need to try to take over the Democratic Party the way that Trump and Trumpism has taken over the Republican Party, or someone like Andrew Yang needs to figure out that they need that the, that where they're needed is not to create another corruptible party, but to really say we're not going to take the corporate dollars that have made both parties so beholden to corporate interests in Wall Street, and actually chart a new path that people like myself, disaffected people, can actually feel comfortable joining. Look, I've said this before. I think it matters what the progressive policy we're talking about is. I think, and I, I think you concede this or agree with this to some degree, that cultural, social, progressive issues are not broadly popular. And they're also many not the subject of federal policymaking. Many economic uh, progressive issues, if 
presented a certain way are popular, I would say. Um, not I, I don't, The word socialism is not popular. Marxism is not popular. But giving, uh, which, which I'm, and I'm not opposed to giving people who need help more help, et cetera. You can phrase it in such a way that these are popular policies. Yeah, I can see that. I, and here's the thing about the social stuff. There's no federal social policy. There's no, no the Democrats aren't no, trying to like. No, that's not true. What the, 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 some DEI stuff, some gender and race stuff is administrative. It's, uh, it's by the education department and the, and the, the, like the advisory letter that Obama sent to like, don't, you know, have, you know, let people use the bathrooms that they want. That advisory letter is what you're it comparing to. It came this to. close to abolishing the concept of female sports. This close. I'm sorry. I, I can't get into that with you right now. I'm not going to do this. We just did a, a, a block. People can't pay their bills. We're about to talk about learning loss. One of the drivers of learning loss, something like over 100,000 kids in New York City were homeless. People in the New York City public school system were homeless last year. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we have millionaires and billionaires making more money than they ever have in American history. With the pandemic, where people were suffering, being a period of time where they earned even more. There's corporate price gouging, and we can't even have a single bloody person in Congress bring up a wealth tax, tax in this moment. The, the so-called progressives can't stand their ground and talk about ending endless wars for two seconds without bending the knee. And so I want to have a conversation about that. And I, I promise you, I'm not bringing up cultural issues. I don't care. Keep it to yourself. Fight it for it on your local level. Do whatever you want. You can, you can do what you want with the trans girl in, in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. I can't have any control over that. That's not my job. I pray for her, and I hope that she's able to live a safe and happy life because I know that that's not how everybody feels in this country, and that really is a bummer. But things are so dire. We, sh- we have to be able to focus on the big issues because the people who are in charge are depending on us not doing that. Well, we can keeping schools open, I agree, is a big issue, but that does impugn specifically democratic policy priority. Fine, not even on the cultural front, on a, on a kind of social or economic front. Those were democratic yes, priorities look, that the people I, are I very frustrated with. I think schools should be open, and I think that they should have ventilation systems and masks should be they available They got billions to, of dollars to, to do so. They didn't, actually, they, I was looking at, a, there was a fascinating, we didn't talk about it, maybe we should have. There's a great Washington Post story on how so much of the money schools got, they didn't even bother spending. Yeah, and those are the they things that we should it. be united on pushing. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's going to be harder for us to get any of those things um, enacted going forward. Um, and it's, it's a bleak time. Mm. We'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. U.S. students in most states and across almost all demographics have experienced setbacks in math and reading since the start of the pandemic. According to the National Assessment of Education Progress, also known as the nation's report card, only 36% of fourth graders and 26% of eighth graders are proficient or above in math. It's the steepest decline ever recorded. When it comes to reading, only 33% of fourth graders and 31% of eighth graders are proficient or above. According to the New York Times, Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona called the results, quote, appalling and unacceptable. Journalist David Zweig tweeted, the NAEP scores in New York Times article are misleading a lot of people to conclude remote school didn't correlate with lower scores. Multiple analyses comparing districts show an overt correlation between time out of school and learning loss. Zweig joins us now to expand on this. Welcome. Hi. 
So help walk me through the, the misrepresentation here. What does the, the Times article say and why do you think that people are getting it wrong? Yeah, um, so these national test scores came out and the Times article and I'll, quite frankly, most of the uh, media coverage um, pointed at, oh, look at this. If you look at California or different places that we're not seeing a big difference in the states that were known for having um, a higher rate of remote instruction versus in person, they weren't seeing a big difference. And a whole slew of people um, were tweeting this out. And uh, I think uh, Jennifer Rubin at Washington Post and others are saying, look, see. But the problem with that is, is that this is really kind of superficial. It's not even an analysis. That's even too you know, specific or generous of a word. It's really just a crude observation of state data. But there happened to have been a number of studies, um, at least three that I know of, um, that were carefully done uh, analyses of data, but they looked at individual districts rather than at state level. And when you look at the individual districts within a state, or multiple states, it tells a very different story. Right. I, I've seen data from uh, Emily Oster. I think that's what one of the studies you're referring to. Yeah, my understanding is when you look at that, you do see a clearer breakdown in the, the longer, uh, the, the more the schools were open in a district, they don't have the same degree of learning loss. Is that, is that accurate? So um, there, there's a study, um, Emily Oster looked at a lot of these data. Um, there was a study out of Harvard, and there's a study um, by Vladimir Kogan, who's a political scientist at Ohio State. And what they found in Kogan's research, where they looked at individual districts comparing in-person school percentage, and they found that students in districts who were fully remote were up to three times higher rates of um, I'm flipping around, but higher rates of these poor scores. There was up to three times greater loss mm-hmm. in, um, in, in the test score averages. I mean, that is a massive difference and it tells a very different story. So we're talking about three different analyses by three different um, researchers or research groups. And they all found the same, uh, this, they all came to the same conclusion, which was that remote learning has a distinct and direct correlation with lower test scores. So to me, um, the bigger story here, kind of like top line, is this is a great example of, you know, when you have kind of very basic data comes out and then the kind of confirmation bias of people, everyone immediately just kind of jumps to their conclusion without taking a step back and looking for, what's actually going on within the, within the, the weeds uh, mm. of the data. And, you know, everyone has confirmation bias, conservatives, liberals, everyone in between. But I think the relevant matter here is that most of the sort of prestigious uh, media outlets all are very homogeneous as far as the political leanings. So when you have that, where the people with their kind of hand on the lever and they all tend to swing in one way and that confirmation bias swings in one way, you have something like this, which is a perfect case study. These uh, test stores come out nationally. Everybody goes ballistic telling the same story about how, look, it doesn't matter for remote learning. But when you actually look at the studies that were done, rather than just this kind of 
superficial analysis, um, you get a very different story. Yeah, I, I saw that the the, yeah, the, the Washington Post, uh, I think Eugene Robinson is the column, wrote a column to exactly that effect, and then that was shared on social media by Randy Weingarten, the teachers union uh, president, as if to suggest, yeah, this is, this is bad, this is a crisis for all schools, but equally because they weren't de denying that there was a, really that much of a difference between the various policies. So yeah, I, I don't, oh yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's just a great, case study about how science and data are interpreted and represented oftentimes by the media. And again, I don't want to say that liberals or progressives are, are more prone to confirmation bias than uh, conservatives may be. That's certainly not the case. It's just that they tend to be the ones who run most of the uh, and work at the prestigious media outlets in our country. So you end up having a narrative that immediately, you know, just fired out of the cannon that everyone believes this thing. And unless you're, and you know, the average person is not gonna be aware of this. They're gonna kind of superficially see a, a, you know, a post on Facebook or maybe they'll glance at the times and see something. But in, unless you actually are looking at the data itself um, and looking at careful studies done by um, experts who are looking into this, you're gonna be, um, have a very confused uh, understanding of what these data actually show. So I don't think that anybody who has a child, knows a child, is a teacher, or knows a teacher can really credibly deny that remote learning obviously isn't as good as in-person learning and can observe with their own eyes the consequences of remote learning on kids. Um, I guess I'm curious, if, is there any part of this conversation that's geared toward actually figuring out how to get kids back on track? That's a, that's a very good question. And you know, I would say one of the ways to think about it is that scores overall dropped. And when we wanna think about, you know, there are obviously are a multitude of reasons of why that happened, because we wanna understand why in order to understand how to fix it, right? And one of the things we have to think about is even the schools that were quote unquote open, the education in there was severely degraded and disrupted. Um, kids up until the spring of last year in most of the country were wearing masks. Their teachers were in masks. I mean, look, there's a reason why I'm not wearing a mask and you're not wearing a mask in this interview. Um, we would have trouble hearing each other, trouble interpreting those things. Imagine you're a little kid in the classroom and for a full year, your teacher has his or her face masked and all of your uh, peers have their face masks. There were quarantines happening all the time. So there is these severe disruptions to the learning experience even when they were in school. So I think one of the yeah. ways to think about resolving that is because there are some people in public health right now um, who continue to say we should think about uh, putting masks back on kids. Um, the governor of New York mentioned um, parents, um, she recommended that parents have their children wear masks again because of RSV. And um, so we need to, which is another virus that's um, uh, very prevalent right now. So we need to think about how all these sort of anti-virus um, uh, mitigations that we're putting in place, how these things impact the kind of day-to-day -day experience of children in a school building. And if they're yeah. going to continue well, if, to if, be in a, go ahead. If I could just get in, I'm sorry. I think it's really important to note that obviously we just came through a national tragedy, a global tragedy in this pandemic in which millions of people have died and that the choice to shut down schools, the length of the shutdowns I think is hotly in debate and what we now know about transmissibility 
et cetera, suggests that many schools should have been open and all earlier. But we should also keep in mind that before the vaccines were disseminated, a lot of people were very concerned about the fact that not just that kids would get COVID, obviously they die at lower rates, but were in fact dying, but that they could come home and infect their parents who were dying at much higher rates, including people who are young and Obviously, a lot of Americans do have pre-exist, you know, these comorbidities that was making it a really risky proposition. So I'm really interested in this conversation about how to deal with the fact that, unfortunately, sacrifices were made because there really was, early in the pandemic, a need to address the fact that this scary thing was happening that we didn't know about. And now I hope the conversation can tr transition from the blame game which is it's, it's important to hold people accountable who knew information about what wasn't and wasn't effective and kept schools closed despite knowing the better. But at some certain point, once people have been held accountable, we really need to be focused on how to get kids back on track. And that's going to take a policy intervention and not just the kind of kvetching that happens on the Internet. But I really I really do appreciate you joining us today, David. Agree. Policy intervention is certainly, um, I think, going to be a necessary thing rather than just people uh, complaining. Yeah, thank you. And we'll have more rising right after this. Since the Pennsylvania Senate debate Tuesday night, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman's campaign has raised over $2 million. Fetterman's team said some of the money will go toward a new ad featuring his opponent's, quote, extremely radical comments on abortion from the debate. The influx of donations comes after Fetterman's highly criticized debate performance, where he often fumbled his words or lost his train of thought, raising concerns about how well he is actually recovering from his stroke. ABC's Cecilia Vega asked White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre where President Biden stands on Fetterman's health. Let's take a listen. The amount of time that the president has spent with Fetterman and the conversation that is happening today in the wake of last night's debate <clears throat> performance, does the president have any concerns about, has he ever raised uh, either a conversation with you that you've been a part of or, or with others here at the White House, um, any concerns about his health? So I'll say this, it, um, with the, in personal conversations that the president has had with the lieutenant governor, the president has found him to be impressive, uh, incredibly bright and talented person who's just as capable as always uh, to carry out uh, his office, uh, the duties of his office, as we know he is lieutenant governor currently, and has great ability and heartfelt concern for the people of the Commonwealth. And that is what uh, the president has observed himself. Uh, that is, uh, you know, as, as is the case before and is the case today. President Biden and Vice President Harris will campaign for Fetterman in Philadelphia on Friday. It's a rare occurrence as the two typically don't travel together. Joining us now to discuss is political analyst and senior lecturer on African-American studies at the University of Maryland, Jason Nichols, and senior Blankley fellow at the Steamboat Institute and Washington editor at The Spectator, Amber Athey. Welcome. Thanks Thank for having you. us. Amber, I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, you know, Fetterman has raised a lot of money. He is capitalizing on um, Oz's statement on abortion, which uh, implied that one's local representative should be involved in the decision on whether or not uh, you should terminate a pregnancy as opposed to a decision between you and your doctor. And a, a lot of Democrats have pointed to that as a a, a kind of a hinge issue that no matter what you think about his, his debate performance, at the end of the day, protecting the right to choose is so galvanizing and motivating that that can help him to coast through regardless of the effects of his stroke. What do you think about that? 
Well, I think it's true that abortion is a galvanizing issue for perhaps members of the Democratic base, but polling just simply doesn't reflect the idea that abortion is a top issue for the majority of American voters. We know those things to be um, inflation, the economy, crime, immigration, the list really goes on. And while I know there have been a lot of headlines about this $2 million that Ferdinand has raised, in the grand scheme of the spending that's going on in Pennsylvania, they're expected to spend about $40 million between Fetterman and Oz over the next week. It's really a drop in the bucket. And this late in the race, um, trying to get a good TV ad spot with that $2 million is really not going to pan out for him. Most of the good TV ad spots at this point are actually purchased. And the Democrats are king at blowing money on uh, candidates late in the game that don't really have a good shot at winning. They did this in 2020 with Hagar in Texas, with Sarah Gideon in Maine, with Amy McGrath in Kentucky. So to me, this is really kind of a desperate ploy to make it seem like Fetterman is performing better than he is, but this $2 million is not going to change the shape of the race. Hmm. Uh, Jason, what are your thoughts? You know, some of us are still processing just how bad that debate performance was, and uh, you know, the, like the best thing you could say for it is some people are already voting. <laughs> maybe they're gonna. Maybe they didn't see it. Um, it was. It was truly bad. How are you know? How are people who who want Fetterman to win? How are Democrats kind of processing all of this? Well, I think there are, there are a few things. First of all, I, I think. Uh, my counterpart and I would both agree that debates don't really decide elections. We've seen that over and over again. I think throughout the country, we've seen uh, debates where one uh, candidate has outperformed the other, and it probably won't make a difference in the long run. The person who I would say lost the debate may actually win uh, the race. So I'm not that concerned about it. And I also would say Pennsylvania ranks ninth in terms uh, of its elderly population. And I think some elderly people may take umbrage to hearing a physician attack his opponent's health, particularly after a stroke. Uh, I think it's also important to say that if we're going to talk about John Fetterman's physical health, then we should probably talk about Herschel Walker's mental health uh, should be a, a, a bigger part of the discussion. You know, there's no cure for dissociative identity disorder. You can recover from a stroke but you can treat dissociative identity disorder, but it's never cured. And if we're going to judge Fetterman's speech may, and his coherence, maybe we should do the same with Herschel Walker down in Georgia. So I think that, that, that neither of those races will be decided by debate performance or anything of the like. I, I think people know where they stand. A lot of people have already voted, as you stated, Robbie. So um, I, I don't think that that should be the worry. Uh, I think the worry should be where the political headwinds are, and they're against Democrats right now, uh, right now with, with our economy. And I think that's what people should be concerned about, but not this debate performance. I, I, I don't know that a lot of people are going to agree that Herschel Walker has some kind of condition that should preclude him from serving Wait, can, more can so than Fetterman. Spe specific here, I, obviously, it, it, we all are aware, I think, at this point, that now two women have accused Herschel Walker of paying uh, for their abortions, which is in conflict with the stated position on whether or not women should have the right to choose. But can you clarify what you mean about him having a dissociative identity disorder, Jason? Yeah, so uh, a long time ago, it used to be called multiple personalities. And right, you know, now it's called dissociative identity disorder. And it's caused him to, you know, behave in ways uh, that are outside of, you know, legality, as a matter of fact. Um, he is accused of putting a gun to a woman's head. And I think that should be part of our, our conversation. He's accused of saying 
that he wanted to have a shootout with police. Uh, so all of the thin blue line and the uh, Blue Lives Matter people, somehow that seems to go out of the window. So I think that, you know, we should have a discussion about this. Paying for abortions is, is honestly, you know, personally, even though it is hypocritical, it's not something that I should say would preclude somebody from holding office. But putting a gun to a woman's head, uh, having four children and raising none of them while you're going around and talking about the responsibility of black fathers, I think that is uh, something that should be part of the conversation. And again, if we're talking about health, he obviously is a person who struggles with mental health and Fetterman struggles with physical health. And there's probably you have a better chance of recovering from physical health issues than you do from mental health issues. But shouldn't he complete that recovery before he tries to run for Senate? I mean, this is a guy who's clearly struggling. I think at this point it's political malpractice to allow him to get up on that stage when he clearly is not in control of his uh, his mind to speech functions. And if we're going to play whataboutism and compare him to Herschel Walker, Herschel Walker has been very open and honest about mm -hmm. his mental health struggles, whereas the Fetterman campaign keeps uh keeps lying or obfuscating his health issues i mean well, let's be honest before the debate the fetterman campaign sent out a memo to reporters suggesting that he wasn't going to lose the debate because of his lack of uh, mental faculties but because dr oz was a professional tv man now all of a sudden after the debate the line from the fetterman campaign is that dr oz was beating up on a disabled person so which is it is fetterman disabled or not so, Amber, so I think it, again mm -hmm. go ahead jason yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, so again, I, I think those are, are good questions, Amber, but here's the thing. The doctors that Fetterman has uh, say that his speech and auditory processing are the problem, not his mental faculties. That is the issue with Herschel Walker. He has serious mental faculties that are impaired by having dissociative identity disorder, which caused him to put a gun to a woman's head. And one of the things that I know about conservatives, and I agree with them, is that guns are not toys, they actually kill people. So him threatening a woman's life, I think should be something that precludes somebody from holding office. He's been open about some of it, but he hasn't been open about the fact that he didn't raise his kids, the fact that he, he puts guns to women's head and he's violent with women. They're, they're, also not, running, they're not running against each other, though, right? These are, right. you know, they're different but, but, races. But we, but we're, talking, I mean, we're talking here, and we've been talking about in earlier segments, the implication has been that the Democrats are somehow negligent in putting forward a, a candidate like Fetterman, who, by the way, had a stroke days before the primary. It wasn't as though there was a plan to have a re, uh, someone recovering from a stroke doing a competitive Senate race like this. But if we're going to talk about the negligence of the Democratic Party and all of those kinds of things, what is the Republican Party's excuse for backing a candidate like Herschel Walker, who never at any time, in my opinion, and in many people's opinion, has presented himself as having the knowledge, the experience, or the temperament, or the ethics to really be in that kind of a position? I think it's a lose-lose. I think there's a lot of problems across the board here. But I appreciate both of you joining us for this discussion today. It's been great. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. We'll have more Rising for you right after this.